No commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Welcome to another edition of BOA Audio. This is definitely one of those episodes where I'm really happy that I have my own show because uh, I'm going in a direction that is fueled by my own crazed interest in this story that's emerged over the last few months. I'm talking about the bizarre saga of Robert Durst, and I was raving about it on the Banal of America Facebook page, telling folks to... uh, check out the jinx, and after the jinx, I had to, had to consume as much as I possibly could about this case and this story. It was so compelling. And uh, luckily, and I wanted to do a show on, on, the, sh- on, uh, on the case for BOA Audio, and luckily all of it sort of came together because our guest tonight, Matt Birkbeck, he wrote the book A Deadly Secret, which actually came out back around the turn of the century, around 2002, 2003, and uh, has reissued the book in light of all the stuff that's gone on with Durst. Uh, since 2002, and all the stuff that's happened in the past year. So for someone like me who just got into this, it was like, first I got an incredible education on what really went down behind the scenes on this case, and then sort of uh, a look at someone who's been looking at this thing for so long, and their, you know, how they see this all unfold now uh, in, in real time, which is crazy about the whole thing. So welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the program. I absolutely love the book. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me on. And I got to tell you, dude, I actually kind of did something I'd never done for uh, for this show before. I read the book twice, read it a weekend, uh, a couple weekends ago, and then today sat down and read it again because I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about here with this story in this case. Uh, and I loved it so much. It's really amazing. And like I said, I recommended the Jinx to people, but really they need to read this book first because that really, uh, really <laughs> sets the stage for a lot of it. Uh, you know, having having seen this special too, it's like, a complete disconnect. There's a lot of things that are very, very different about it. But before we get into all that, take me through, uh, you know, the bio background on Matt Birkbeck. Introduce yourself to the audience and uh, tell us how you got wrapped up in all this. Uh, well, I've been a journalist for a long time. I've written for a number of different uh, magazines and uh, newspapers across the country, uh, including uh, Reader's Digest, New York Times, Playboy. Uh, and at the time, uh, back in 2000, uh, when I was assigned this dessert story, I was working for People Magazine, and uh, we were reacting to uh, stories that had broken in, into New York newspapers about this new investigation into the 1982 disappearance of a woman named Kathy Durst. Uh-huh. And so uh, I 
spends about three weeks on it. I wrote a lengthy story, and it appeared, it was published in early December of 2000, and then three weeks later, a woman by the name of Susan Berman was murdered. And that's when the story uh, at first gained its national focus. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll do. What I'll, I'll tell you what we'll do because I'm sure you kind of have to do this all the time. I'll do. I'll do the thumbnail here on the Durst story so we can just catch people up on it. Uh, I'll do like a two minute elevator thing here so that, that way uh, you don't have to t- tell the story for the millionth time. And you can uh, fill in any details and stop me if you feel like uh, I missed something important. But the, the the gist of it all is, for folks who aren't even familiar with all this, go and check it out. But here here's the story in a nutshell. Robert Durst, he's a millionaire real estate scion. Uh, He's the heir to a a huge real estate fortune in New York City, Uh, just massive, massive, massive. In the 70s, he uh, falls in love, gets married to this lady, uh, Kathy uh, McCormick, who ends up becoming his wife, Kathy Durst. Early 80s, I think 82 or 83, I think 83, uh, Kathy Durst goes missing, and Essentially, you know, before we, without getting into all the nitty-gritty details, uh, the case goes cold. Then uh, about 18 years later, the case opens up again. The New York police want to look at it again. And that's when, as Matt said, uh, all this stuff went down. The media gets wind of it. Durst gets wind of it. He runs down to Galveston, Texas to hide out. But in the meantime, uh, his closest confidant during the uh, Kathy Durst years, she gets murdered Nine months later, uh, murders his neighbor, gets caught for that, and uh, dismembers the dude, and then runs off and jumps bail uh, to run around the country for a few months, gets caught, brought back to Galveston, goes on trial, pleads self-defense, gets off, which is amazing, uh, then serves a few years in prison, kind of hangs around the country for a while, uh, and then reemerges here this year with this, uh, with this Jinx show. Uh, which is like the first time he's ever really spoken uh, or given an interview or anything like that. And uh, then throughout the course of the jinx, uh, other things are happening in the real world, and then sort of this transformative moment comes along where like the real world and and the, and the show collide, and the police now have arrested Robert Durst uh, for what seems like evidence that was found during the making of the jinx, but uh, we're, we're going to find out about that stuff tonight. But that's that's the general thumbnail story of Robert Durst. Did I get that pretty much right? That was pretty good. Thank that you. Was, uh, nice job. I don't know if I could have done it any better. Awesome, awesome. So that's that's the whole thing. I guess I want to get into your mind here because you wrote the book a while ago, obviously, and then all this is happening. It's like Durst is such an elusive character. He, you know, the whole the whole thing is everyone's talking about this guy. You know, we never really even find out anything from this guy until all this this show came along. I guess as someone who spent years. Uh, studying this person, what did you think as you were watching him finally like speak for the first time? I know he was on trial and, and was on, you know on the stand in Texas, but this is a whole different kettle of fish. Uh, well, I saw him like you just said. I I did see him. I covered the trial in Galveston in 2003, and I saw him in court in Pennsylvania in early 2002 when he was extradited. So watching him during the first few episodes the way he was talking, his mannerisms and whatnot, it wasn't much of a surprise. Uh, you know, if anything, it was uh, it was unsurprising. I thought I'd see more. What really struck me was the ending of the huh. jinx. Uh-huh. And, you know, as you mentioned, and for those who saw it, they'll know what I'm talking about. Right. For those who didn't see it, 
it's you know when you go, he, he he basically this is the first time you, you see in my mind the real Robert Durst the Robert Durst I had originally covered back in 2001 2002 2003 the guy who people said you know uh, was a serial killer um, he knew how to dismember a body you know as I write in the book the guy that was stealing identities for, for years living in different cities across the country right um, and then listening listening to him have these multiple conversations when he goes into this bathroom I'm sure we'll get back into this later and then admits to killing them all that's the, that was the real Robert Durst and you know five and a half episodes of what pretty much was kind of I mean it was interesting for people who had never seen uh, Durst before with their story um, but the end of it was just uh, it was stunning yeah yeah it was like I said uh, it was it was like transformative TV it was like nothing I've ever seen in my life on television it was like what is this is crazy you know if he hadn't spent the five hours getting to know the guy it wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't have that that, uh, that that sort of punch in the gut thing but I, I totally agree with you that uh, having read the book and then see, and then and then and then comparing it to the show, it's like there's a there's a huge disconnect. There's the things that are really patently wrong that I that that stood out to me. And I know you you, you did a great uh, interview with Vulture, so I almost don't even want to kind of get into too much of the the questions sort of delved into there. Because uh, one thing that stood out to me from the book was she's like this. She's like if, if Durst is villain A one in the book, then this Gilberti is like villain one B or something. You know she. <laughs> She uh, and the funny part is having watched the special, I, I was like enamored with her. I loved her. I was like, oh, Gilberti, the best. Oh, she's in the last episode. Good, she deserves it. You know, after the show was over, they did a special Janine Pirro episode. Now that I realize I should have been more cynical about that, but I'm like, oh, I hope Gilberti will be on there. You know, and having read the book now, I'm like, those two. Oh, give me a break. So I guess talk a little bit about her. She's probably listening. You know, because uh, she seems obsessed with this whole thing. But talk a little bit about her because. This, I mean, I gotta tell you, man, I really felt a lot of like um, suspicion surrounding her throughout this whole thing. Um, having read the book, it's like she's the last person to see Kathy alive, other than Bob. She uh, never submits a deposition when they're interviewing people later on. Uh, this whole thing with her criminal background comes out in the book. It's it, there's a whole litany of stuff. You know, she breaks into Durst's house. It's like there's a whole litany of things that she does that that really. I don't know. Make me very weary, I guess, is the best way to put it. But talk a little bit about sort of what you've uncovered, uh, you know, over the course of your years looking into this whole thing. Well, when I was assigned the people piece, uh, the first person I actually spoke to was Gilberto Najami. And during the first, uh, actually during my reporting for the story, I mean, she was just a great source at the time in that she seemed to, to know the story inside and out. She was very dramatic, very compelling. She introduced me to other contacts. Um, and when you're reporting on a story, you know, a magazine piece or even a newspaper piece, you have, you have a very short period of time to report, unlike a book where you're going to be spending months. Right. So during this short period of time, to me and to a lot of other journalists who had dealt with Gilberta, she was golden. She was the source to go to. Okay. Well, over the course of the next year or so, it was – Cracks in her story began to develop. Now, I'm not just covering this for People magazine. I'm also writing for Reader's Digest, and I'm also now working on a book. Hmm. And people that Gilberta, um, there were people she didn't 
would she suggested I not interview or would say, this one doesn't know much about anything. One of those people was Helen Strauss, who turned out to be not just a wonderful source, but she had evidence hidden away in a uh, safe deposit box, right. which revealed what really happened with Kathy Durst that last day she was seen at Gilberta's house. And she also had this uh, doctor's note, which got into Bobby Durst and his psychological problems when he was a youth. So I confronted Gilberta with some of this. She would dismiss it. She'd find a way to explain it away. Uh, and then, you know, other things would happen. And, and, again, you know, my trust in her faded quickly, uh, particularly as a source. Uh, and then came the news that she was a convicted felon, hmm. that she had been arrested numerous times and mostly drug-related. Uh, you know, more importantly, though, she lied about, you know, Gilberta, for those who saw the jinx, and you saw it, she tells this very compelling story about, you know, how she was Kathy Durst's best friend, and she gets into the deterioration of the relationship between Kathy and Bobby Durst, and how Gilberta has this family party on this last Sunday that Kathy Durst has seen, and she invites Kathy over. It's a very quiet party, says Gilberta. Bobby's calling the house incessantly, demanding that Kathy return home. Kathy's scared, but she decides to go anyway and says to Gilberta, if anything happens to me, you know it was Bobby. That was Gilberta's story. Right. It, was, it wasn't the truth. It was far from the truth. Hmm. And that um, really, I was really shocked that Andrew Jarecki, the director of The Jinx, would use her, and not only just use her, have her tell that same story without even challenging her on it, in that Jarecki and I, we've spoken going back since 2005, so Andrew knew the truth. You know, why he allowed her to do that, why uh, why he allowed Durst to say certain things that weren't true. You know, we can get into that in a little bit. But just sticking with Gilberta. So, you know, she, she this this these source documents that this other woman, Ellen Strauss, had were written with Gilberta a week after Kathy disappeared. And Kathy and Gilberta's telling Ellen Strauss, you know, Kathy came to this party, it was a wild party. She drank two bottles of wine. She snorted two grams of cocaine. I interviewed another person who was at the party, and they said it was Kathy who left the house to pick a fight with Bobby. Right. And that Gilberta was prompting her to do it. So the story gets twisted on Gilberta's end, and you know, as far as as far as law enforcement's concerned, she's not a credible source. As as, as far as most of the, most journalists are concerned, she's not a for those who don't for those who know her. She's not a credible source. You know, again, why Jarecki decided to, to, to include her and spend a lot of time with her, that's that's a question for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's baffling, like I said, because like it changes the whole – It's almost it's, it's, in a funny way, it's like it, it gives your book a whole different twist. It gives it a twist at the end because it was like a twist ending for me because I was like, what? Wait a minute. I'm all well, – this is crazy. So it's and that you know that's all all thanks to the failings of the jinx. Uh, I mean, what, I guess probably may, maybe I don't even want to speculate really, but I wonder why you know maybe just because that's the narrative that's been beaten like a drum over the years that that uh, Gilberta's tried to keep going all this time that it just sort of yeah. stopped them. Actually, yes, that was a narrative that a lot of other newspapers picked up. To this day, they continue to pick it up. They go read old clips and they go, "Oh, great, let's you know let's rewrite the same thing." Hmm. Uh, but it's 
you know, it's a narrative that, you know, I don't, look, I don't have any, uh, you know, uh, I'm writing from an, object, an objective point of view. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what happened to Kathy Durst, for instance, and Susan Berman, and, you know, who was Morris Black, the guy that ended up dismembered, chopped up, and dumped into Galveston Bay, mm-hmm. you know. I'm trying to report accurately what the police did, what they didn't do, what prosecutors did, what they didn't do, what the families were doing, and above all, what Bobby Durst was doing, which, you know, I think I, I, I think I did a pretty good job with that, especially in the years leading up to these new investigations. Uh, but Gilberta really um, put a really uh, unfavorable twist on this story and had people going in, di- in different directions that they never should have gone on. Right. And, uh, you know, again, it's really unfortunate that uh, Andrew Jarecki had uh, decided to use her in this documentary. Now, do you think you kind of like raised the idea or maybe it was Ellen who raises the idea that like she not to get too much into her head, but it's like she she sort of drove the narrative because she felt so bad about pushing pushing this kind of lighting the fuse to the, to the whole thing that may have ended uh, Kathy's life. Because there's a part of me that almost wonders, because, I mean, we've, we've come out of this whole thing kind of of the conclusion that Durst is this, like, super evil dude. And, uh, you know, I'm, like, <laughs> 90% sure of that. But there's a part of me that's like, shit, how do I know that, how do I know that Gilberti didn't do all this? And she's, and you know, and, and, and Bob's just kind of on the side, like, I don't know anything about what you're talking, you know what I mean? It's like there's a part of me that really, really get, is suspicious of, of, of her role in all this. That's interesting because my understanding is Bobby Durst, you know, aside from wanting to kill his brother Douglas, uh, second on the list was Gilberta in that uh, he had read the book and, in fact, had two copies of the book in his condo when he was arrested. And uh, my understanding is that he was not happy with Gilberta's retelling of this story. You know, to Bobby, Gilberta was someone who he did not want in, in their lives. I think I, when you read the book and you really and, and you start to see Gilberta and her story unfold, what you really see is a woman that's in love with another woman, and that other woman was Kathy Durst. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for her, it was about getting gaining her affections. There's a scene in in the book in which Gilberta and Kathy actually go to the Caribbean, and uh, they share they're sharing a room together, and Gilberta's got some delusions that somehow they're gonna you know, be intimate, but Kathy apparently goes off and meets someone who actually, I don't name the guy, so I can't name him now, turns out to be a very important New York politician. Uh, And Gilberta was very, she was very upset. She felt that uh, she had been abandoned uh, by Kathy. So, uh, you know, Gilberta's story is a, it's an an unfortunate one. one. Yeah, it's an unfortunate one. Like, you you know, if you want to go down the cast of villains here, you got, of course you got Bobby, and then you got Gilberta, and then you could throw Janine Pirro in there. I mean, there, there's a few of them that you can, you know, kind of throw darts at. Yeah, yeah, so a few of these kids have their own documentary series. Um, well, another dude who I really came out of reading your book with a, a newfound respect for is uh, is the is the sergeant who really. Oh man, where where is it in the notes here? Uh, where's his name on here? Jeez. We're talking about Mike Struck. Yes, Mike Struck. I'm sorry, I thought I had that written down, but yeah, he. That's uh, okay. You know, it's funny because you, you talk about the ABC special and it's like he, he fell victim to the same thing. It was deja vu all over again for him on the jinx. It's like 
he really get he really gets painted as this dude who didn't know what he was doing. But then when you read your book, it's like, no, he did know what he was doing. He's he's dealing with you know this lady who's making up stories, people who are making up stories to try and protect their job. It's like, no wonder the case went cold. Uh, he really he really he did the very best he could. It seems from reading your book and. But continually, like in these media pieces, he gets painted like they bungled the case, which is not the case. I feel, you know, I feel badly for Mike Strzok in that, uh, you know, you're right on. He was painted very poorly in the jinx. I have no idea why he agreed to interview. Uh, You know, I thought he was pretty much done with that, given how he had been treated by the media before that. You know, you're talking about a detective. Um, You know, Bobby actually reports, shows up in the police station switch truck tells him that his wife has been missing and that's where the story begins okay mm-hmm. and struck you know in the jinx basically you know mike spent some time on the case you know was looking in the wrong places at the wrong times you know spent most of his time in new york uh and then basically the case went cold and he had spent so much time on this case, I, I was lucky enough to get copies of the actual investigative files uh, on on Strzok's investigation, and he spent months digging into this. The problem for Mike was that he had two witnesses tell him that they saw Kathy Durst in Manhattan that Sunday night. Bobby had said that he put her on a train for New York, which was a lie, but Strzok didn't know that at the time. And there were two witnesses in the building where Kathy and Bobby had lived who said that, yes, we saw her here that Sunday night. So now he has no reason to believe that she was in Westchester. He's now thinking that she was definitely in Manhattan. Right. And so he spends a lot of time and a lot of effort. And actually, at the end of the day, he wants to charge him with murder. Only the district attorney's office says no because the case is circumstantial at best and in the event, you know, given who you're going to be dealing with, with with Thirst and with his resources and the money and the family, uh, they're going to hire the best attorneys. And let's just say he's going to be acquitted, and you can never file charges against him again because of double jeopardy. So, you know, for Strzok, it was it was unfortunate. And again, just like Alberta, where the media picks up on this old narrative that isn't true, they pick up on the Strzok narrative, which again is another thing in the jinx that was really troubling. In that directly knew the, the true story of Mike Struck. So why he can, why he he painted him in such a poor light? Again, that's a that's a question for Andrew Jarecki. Now, have you? I uh, just uh, just so we you know just to just uh, for the record or whatever. Have you talked to him like Jarecki? I mean, since this all came out and been like, hey, dude, A, B, C, and D. I mean, obviously you you know you're saying this to me. You've given interviews explaining all this. Like, has there been any? Any word out of, out of that camp or, or any sort of rumblings at all about uh, about any of this? Yeah, we did speak. We spoke a few days after that last episode aired. And, uh, you know, it was cordial. And, uh, you know, I, I raised a couple of things with him. And he had, uh, you know, he had his own answers for them. You know, I asked him not just about some of the things that people said. He felt he was, he felt, look, he's a filmmaker. I'm a journalist. You know, I, I have a different uh, threshold than he does. Hmm. And so he felt, for instance, that allowing Bobby Durst to, you know, tell the world that his father had put him in front of a window to watch his mother die, which wasn't true, 
But he felt yeah. Bobby to say that was all he needed to do. You know, that was his only responsibility was allow Bobby to say what he wanted unfiltered. And, you know, my response would be, well, you could have challenged him because, you know, it wasn't, that yeah. wasn't true. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this was his project. He asked me, we had met back in 2011 when he first told me that Thurston agreed to interview with him. And I was shocked when I heard that. But he asked me to interview, to sit down for some interviews with him, and I had declined. You know, given that we had two different views of Durst, you know, I, I firmly believed that he wasn't just a murderer, but in all likelihood was a serial killer. And Jurecki thought that Durst was a far more complicated guy who's, you know, was suffering through the weight of living with this influential and wealthy family. Hmm. You know, to me, it was a little too much for me. Yeah. So yeah. I just, I just, uh, you know, we agreed to disagree, and I declined to appear, and. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad I, I'm glad I didn't appear. Uh, you know, that said, for all of its faults, and there were a lot of them. Again, that last uh, last ten minutes of the Jinx was, you know, perhaps some of the most stunning television I, I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, it was amazing stuff. Um, yeah, well, you wonder if it's like he just the. If, if like it's just the whole process of of Durst thinking he's getting his way the whole time uh, with Jarecki led him to being so. Uh, let his guard down so easily at the end, but who knows? That was, you know, that's interesting because the reason why Durst even approached him was because of Turecki did the uh, feature film All Good Things in 2010, yeah, which was based on the Durst story, and it was far more favorable to Durst. You know, it did paint him as this conflicted character who may have killed his wife, and that was about it. Uh, and so, you know, Durst reached out to Jarecki and agreed to do this documentary believing he'd get similar treatment. Uh, unfortunately for Durst, that didn't happen. Hmm. Well, you, you touched on something here that seems, it's like sort of like one of the keystone debates, I guess, of people who look at this Durst thing. It's like there's some people who think that uh, that he's a murderer, but he murders, uh, you know, they're, con- they're, they're circum, I don't even know how, you know, they're, they're in the moment murders. They're, they're necessary murders, let's say. I don't know, I can't come up with the right word off the top of my head here, but, you know, he kills uh Kills Kathy, then he has to kill the other people, sort of as uh, as he goes along to cover his tracks, essentially, you know. And, and then there's other people who seem to think that, uh, as you scratch further below the surface, as you've said, that he may be just a serial killer, that he that he just kills for all sorts of different reasons, and that just because this of uh, the circumstances surrounding his wife and and this lady, because they were because they knew him, may be totally different or or running parallel to this life as a serial killer. I think my take on it was well. Let me go back to when I got the People magazine assignment. Yeah. I thought it was this kind of a typical story where husband kills wife, gets away with it, and justice prevails years later. And then Susan Berman is murdered some a few weeks later, and then it, I'm still thinking in that vein, and now a witness is quieted. When Mars Fat Black was murdered, that's when this whole thing changed. And when I arrived in Galveston, the first thing... At the, at the police said to me, the detective, Cody Cazales, who was actually in the chinks. Yeah. Uh, first thing he said to me was that whoever dismembered Mars Black knew what he was doing. And that to me was just chilling. You know, you can't, you don't, you can't just open up a, a, a book and, you know, uh, you know, dismemberment 101. Yeah. And, you know, and learn how to do that. It takes a lot of practice, especially when you know you have to go to, to the, without getting too graphic, you have to go to the right points. Uh, yeah, yeah, the the whole, there's a whole technique and, involved. Yeah, and so now, 
okay, so now he knows how to dismember bodies, and now I'm working on the book, and now I'm finding out that before this new investigation had begun, that Durst, throughout the 19, late, 18, late 1980s and the 1990s, Durst had been living this bizarre life. Imagine a guy with his kind of money uh, and the resources he has being able to travel from city to city, stealing identities, dressing at times like a woman, living and hanging out near homeless shelters with transients. And, of course, he knows how to, or he learned somehow, to dismember a body. Now, what does that tell you? Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's something going on here that's much, much bigger than a simple murder case. So it's something I wrote about. Uh, I get into deeply in the book in terms of describing what was going on. I had to help in terms of finding these identities. I had to help a private investigator down in Texas named Bobby Basha, who was a great resource. Uh, and I've, you know, I've said this for years, thankfully now, and we actually have to thank, you know, the notoriety from the jinx for this and that the FBI now believes he's a serial killer. And they're looking at, they're looking uh, in cities across the country where Durst had lived before to see if they can tie him to any missing persons cases there in those cities. It's pretty remarkable. And I, you know, I did come out of the whole thing thinking the same thing, that he's a serial killer, because it makes no, there's no other reasoning for, uh, for why he's doing all this, you know, and to go back in, in a way, in a way I feel having read the book and seen the show, it's like, I, I get annoyed because it's like, these are questions that I want to ask Durst. You know, it's like, dude, what are you doing? Why are you traveling around the country doing this? You know, but they, he's never presented with this uh, with this challenge, which makes it even more frustrating in a sense. Because it was frustrating, right? It was frustrating watching it. In that, you know, a real key part of the Durst story is his psychology. I mean, you can clearly see there's something wrong with the guy hmm. when you're watching the Jinx. You know, by his movements. Now he's claimed he has he's had Asperger's syndrome. You know, prior to the 2003 trial, I had never heard that before. And a lot of people think it's just something that the defense had dreamed up um, as part of their strategy. Uh, He, you know, he clearly has got issues. You saw those issues manifest themselves in in the the last few minutes of the jinx when he's having these bizarre, you know, different personalities and talking to each other. That's what it sounds like. Going back and forth, asking a question, he answers it. They ask her a question, what the hell did I do? He answers it, killed them all, of course. You know, it was really chilling, but clearly there's this whole psychological part of it, and it goes back, as I report in the book, uh, which is another document Ellen Strauss had that Gilbert and Najami didn't want the world to see for some reason, uh, and that was this doctor's letter in which Durst, at the age of 10, was diagnosed with having severe psychological problems uh, that, if left untreated, would create what the doctor said would be this severe psychodynamic force that would ultimately lead to other problems throughout his adult life, and we've seen those problems. Yeah. Well, what do you make of the whole traveling around in in, in drag part of it? Because to me, it makes me really wonder, like, if he's if he's also dealing with like gender issues at the same time as all this is going on, or if he or if it's just the best way for him to his mo, you know, that it, that it works perfectly for him to to do what he wants to do. It's it's cuz you know I oh, I was interested from the book, you know, for folks like me who dive into all this stuff afterwards that you say that um the private investigator in Texas Baca, she 
looked into the GQ article, which claims that Durst was like almost essentially transgendered down in Galveston, and that that's not even that that that, that article is a is, is bogus. So they, she yeah she couldn't find. Um, she went to the club where the story was based on, and she did speak to the one uh, or to the. I guess the person who was the leading cross-dresser there, and the person was actually insulted that someone else would, you know, usurp, usurp his um, notoriety, you know, num- number one status there, and said that they had no idea who this person was. So I don't, you know, the whole thing with Durst cross-dressing, when I first heard about it, um, well, obviously he did it when to get to, to get the apartments not just in Galveston, but also in New Orleans a few months later. So he had two different uh, places to go to. You know, the fact that he was going to places dressed as a woman, uh, you know, I, I and now I'm hearing that, you know, I reported on other two other missing girls in California, uh, one of which Durst apparently came to a store she worked at dressed in drag. I'm not sure what I can make of it other than I just keep thinking of the movie Psycho. Um, and Anthony Perkins and how he turns into his mother and dresses, you know, yeah. um, dresses as her yeah, and talks like her. And, you know, in this case, Durst was, a, you know, dressing as a female, but as a deaf mute. Uh, so, but it wasn't. But what's really intriguing about this, though, is that when he fled New York, when word of this new investigation broke in 2000, that's when I first heard about it, and start writing about it. He didn't just dream up, you know. He didn't come up, just come up with this idea. Oh, let me masquerade as a deaf mute woman and rent an apartment in some, you know, uh, town that nobody's going to look for me in, meaning Galveston. Right. This is what he had been doing for years. He was prepared for it. Exactly. He knew how to do it. He know where he knew where to go, and that's exactly what he did. Ooh, makes it even more creepy. Now, just uh, let me hit some sort of short ones here. This is kind of an uh, interesting one. Did it? Now, the early, a lot of people picked up on this because it was in the background of uh, of the Jinx, and it's actually in the book. Uh, this is like the theme of this of this episode. Is like, did you see the Jinx? Good. Read fucking uh, a deadly secret because you're gonna learn more. You're gonna find out all the stuff you've been wondering from watching the show. The 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 ransom note. This intrigued me. Uh, uh, Struck goes to, to Durst's apartment, then Durst shows him this ransom note. It's only like a paragraph in the book, and like I said, it's mentioned in the background, uh, literally in the background of uh, the Jinx. But do we know anything more about the ransom note? And uh, since the show has come out, has anyone gone back and checked for block letters on that? Uh, I don't know. I can't answer that question. Uh, my understanding was way back when the police believed it was something that uh, Durst had concocted and really didn't uh, put much uh, Did they say thought that? into it. So, Did they say uh, that? No, I don't, I don't recall. You know, I don't recall seeing it. There weren't, there weren't too many things in the Jinx that surprised me. The only things I hadn't seen, of course, I didn't hear the ending, um, and I did not see the letter that he was confronted with, yeah. uh, with the handwriting on it. You know, most everything else I was pretty familiar with, so there wasn't one too many other surprises. I never did, I don't recall ever seeing this ransom letter, and my my best recollection is that the, the police didn't think much of it. Yeah. It would be interesting to see if they could ever, if, if it got, like, tossed out, or if uh, anyone... Uh... It's a good question. Yeah. But, you know, it's something uh, I think I might ask someone about. 
Yeah, you should definitely uh, see about that. The other thing I was wondering about is um, the you mentioned here that, and uh, I had it in my notes that Durst also has this uh, apartment in New Orleans where he's pretty much pulling the same Dorothy Signer routine uh, down in New Orleans. And um, when all the uh, Morris Black stuff goes down after he murders Morris Black and goes on the run, uh, he ditches the apartment. But the dude who is renting the apartment goes back and. I love how Durst just leaves leaves things leaves incriminating things behind all the time. He's insane. Um, amongst the stuff at the apartment is a da- is a medallion that says Davy Berman. This feels like this would be like something that the L.A. police would want to know about or something. That this seems like a critical like a critical tell that how, how does he have this unless he's somehow involved in the in the Berman murder. Well, no, I'm sure they're aware of it and and, and they know everything you need to know about it. But he, but the, the genesis of that story. Is after Morris Black was murdered, I did I did another piece for People Magazine. Then I get a phone call from my editor in New York, who says someone is desperately trying to reach me about the story, and I end up talking to the person, and he tells me that he has a brother who was on a flight from Mexico reading People, reading my story in People about this deaf mute killer or alleged killer from Galveston, and he says to himself, Jesus. I'm renting an apartment to the same type of person in New Orleans. It turns out when the guy goes back to into New Orleans, he enters into the apartment and he had rented it out to a woman named Diane Winnie who turned out to be Durst and had left behind, uh, you know, the Davy the, the Davy Berman medallion and some other um, personal effects of Susan Berman. I once I, I learned that story, I had actually called down to Cody Cazales um, in Galveston, and I related to him, and he rushed over the next day. He drove to to New Orleans, and uh, and he and Durst was long gone, but he was able to not just uh, get the personal effects of Susan Berman, but also some. There was some a computer, and it was, if I remember, and some some computer hardware, yeah. uh, and a couple of other things. But clearly, Durst had been there. Yeah. Well, it's just amazing that he, you know, I was I was just hilariously sort of put off that he, you know, like he like when he dumps Morris Black in the ocean and stuff, he just leaves receipts and all this other things with him. It's he's not very good at <laughs> well, I, I don't know why he if he's a serial killer, I don't know how he slipped up so badly this time around, but so I thought I think the general consensus is he believed that the body parts would have sunk into the into the bay, uh not floated like they did and then come back to the shore. Mm. So it was a it was a miscalculation on his part. Yeah. And then by then Dorothy Signer would have been long gone, so would have made a difference. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That makes sense. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's You're all right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Right, of course. But you can't imagine. Now, have you ever talked to this this Sarab Kaufman? Because he's sort of the guy that the that this new letter hinges on and everything. And a lot of people are sort of, uh, you know, they raise their suspicions because it's like, how did this thing go undiscovered for all these years? Uh, 
you know, so I guess what do you make of this this guy and 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 how and how the whole thing went down as far as them finding this letter? Well, I did. I interviewed Sarah years ago. I didn't know anything about the letter uh, when I spoke with Jarecki after the final episode of the Jinx. I even I asked him about that because I thought it it kind of looked staged to me. Right. Uh, you know, the whole we had to go over to the apartment. Sarah's got something for us to read. He's shaking. He's upset. You know, it seemed as if, uh, you know, they had gone through this before. I have no doubt they came up with a letter. Uh, just the way that they portrayed it was a little too dramatic. So I asked him about it. You know, he said that uh, it appeared the way it actually happened. So, you know, at this point, you have to take him at his word. Uh, he could be, in the event that Susan Berman, that Durst has tried for the Susan Berman murder, uh, you know, Jurecki and his co-producer Mark Smerling, you know, could potentially be called as witnesses. Yeah, and uh, you know, they, I'm sure they'll be questioned on that, as along with a lot of other things. Uh, but uh, you know, the letter apparently existed, and but the, the significance of the letter and this cadaver note, you know, in the book I wrote, I'm not sure about the significance of it. In that it was interesting in the Jinx, but they already had. Durst handwriting samples, uh, particularly, you know, years ago when they went to Galveston and, and the Los Angeles police had taken a, they had done a handwriting analysis and, and, and their first analyst said, yes, definitely it's a match. Uh, for some reason along the way, they did a second one and the second guy wasn't so sure that, you know, maybe, but who knows. And it kind of you know, muddied up the waters for them as far as prosecuting was concerned. What the guys in the Jinx did was they got other copiers' handwriting, which is what the police could have easily have done too. So I'm not sure of exactly what was going on there. Oh, yeah. You know, with, with the handwriting and all of that. Obviously, the key thing here is that Beverly and Beverly Hills was misspelled, not just in the cadaver letter, but also in this particular letter. Hmm. So that's that's the general link there. And of course, there could be some DNA evidence uh, linking Durst. To those letters, right? right. Uh, it's something that it's something that I've heard of. It's something that's been hinted to me, but it's something I'm not sure about. Right, because that's you know that's how they were kind of trying to. Uh, that's what they keep doing to the zodiac. Thing. They keep pulling the uh, stuff off the stamp and trying to match it to people. So it stands to reason if uh, you know if there's a stamp on it, maybe he or or lick the envelope or something. Yeah, makes sense. One of the other sort of like big tentpoles of sort of contention or discussion amongst the people who look at this thing is the idea of the role of the Durst Corporation, the Durst family. Obviously, it's changed over the years. Now they want nothing to do with this guy. They see him as a complete nut and a dangerous individual. But when it all went down with the disappearance of Kathy, they took a, a quote-unquote hands-off approach and makes you almost but, – but then there's always people who speculate on what really was going on. And you know, in the book, I, it kind of suggests the idea because Struck is talking to one of his uh, one of his colleagues, and they're sort of reflecting on how they didn't, how they're not under a lot of pressure to solve this case. They're not under, you know, the the the, the big players in the police brass aren't aren't breathing down their neck to to get to the bottom of this. So it almost speaks to like an anti-conspiracy in a way, where it was like the maybe the strings were being pulled just to just to let it go, just you know, just let this thing go. Don't. Don't uh, don't 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 go after what really happened in a sense. So I mean, but what's your take on sort of the ideas behind what the Durst, uh, you know, the Durst Enterprise may have uh, done behind all, behind the scenes on all this? Well, 
you know, Kathy Durst was a blue-collar woman from Long Island. So, you know, she wasn't part of any power structure. She wasn't, you know, she didn't come from wealth. So, in effect, yes, she was Bobby's wife. But as far as that went, once she no longer was his wife, they retreated and they did nothing to help the police, nor did they do anything to help the McCormick family. There's a scene in the book, which is a really troubling scene, in which uh, the family, led by Jim McCormick, the brother, finally, after months, they get a meeting with Seymour um, Durst, uh, Bobby's father. You know, now Seymour is, is you know, he's, he's he's the big man. He's he's the guy that was on the cover of New York Magazine, Five Most Powerful Men in New York, yeah. Donald Trump and several other guys. And Seymour is listening, and he's not offering them anything. And then one of Durst's other brothers, Bobby Durst, uh, Tom Durst, walks in, sees everyone there, says, what's going on? They, You know, when he finds out that they're there to try to get Seymour to help them, he throws everybody out. So Durst, so, and, and then in turn, because of who Kathy was, there was no effort and there was no lobbying on the part of anyone on the police or on any other law enforcement to solve this case. Now, there's another story. You know, Strzok, before this happened, he solved the murder at the Met, which was a high-profile case a couple of years earlier, and it gained him a lot of notoriety. And there was a ton of pressure placed on him, as well as the police department, to solve that murder. Nothing was going on with Kathy Durst, which is why, which is another reason why this whole thing just kind of went away there are four or five months of investigating. Hmm. And and that kind of continues in a sense in the later years because uh, the, the, the thing about the book that really blew my mind too was the, the timeline of the Berman thing. You know, the the popular narrative is that she the, the that Janine Pirro puts forward all the time is that they were about to, they were just about to go talk to her. It was, you know, days away they were going to go talk to her. And then you find out from reading A Deadly Secret that they hadn't even contacted her or anything, and 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 you know the the investigators in New York found out she was dead after the New Year when they called to to get a hold of her. So it's that's, yeah, that's that's another revelation and a really important point that the Jinx just didn't get right. And in fact, if for those who remember the Jinx, in one of the first few episodes, Janine Pirro had a really big role in this. I don't know why uh, is telling the world that. She not only got the tip to restart this investigation, but that she was about to interview Susan Berman. And she's now, whether she's talking, it sounds like she's talking about herself, or even if she's talking about her department, you know, she's saying, we were going to talk to her. It never happened. In fact, Janine Pirro was so far removed from this case, all she did was, from time to time, one, I'll give you an example. When just before word broke that the, of this new investigation in 2000, uh, the investigator that actually started this all, a guy by the name of Joe Becerra, and if you saw the jinx, you won't even remember who he is because he was only on it for about 15 seconds. Yeah, he is. He was the key figure in getting this case started up again. He's the one who got the tip. He's the one who labored for a year investigating. He gets to a point where they got this meeting where he brings in Durst's fan, uh, uh, the McCormick's, Kathy's friends, including Roberta that we mentioned earlier. They have this big meeting, and he's about to go talk to Bobby. And, of course, someone from that meeting leaks it to the press. 
Janine Pirro wasn't even at the meeting. She poked her head in, as I described in the book, says hello to people and walks away. Yeah. Janine Pirro got involved in this case once she was informed that Susan Berman was murdered. And that came after Berman had died. It was when Joe Becerra, in early January of 2001, called to Los Angeles just to give him a courtesy call, just to let them know he was going to interview someone in the jurisdiction. They said, who is it? It's a woman by the name of Susan Berman. They put him on hold. They come back. Uh, well, she's dead. And Becerra's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> he goes and tells He goes and tells Piero. The next thing you know, now the case takes on this whole, it goes to this bizarre level. Now Janine Piero is on CNN. She's on uh, every news network you can think of telling the world that, uh, you know, a witness is dead and clearly it looks like it was Bobby. And she's just soaking up all this, you know, all this uh, TV FaceTime. Uh, one, because she's running for re-election. Two, the bigger reason, is because she's got personal problems because her husband's about to be indicted on federal tax charges. So, you know, so her role in this whole thing was more about, and as you read in the book, I get into it pretty deeply, hmm. it was more about her trying to use this case for its publicity value. Yeah. And to not only cover up the warts of her life, but also to, at the end of the day, you know, catapult her to perhaps political prominence. You know, she did run for office in New York in 2005, and she subsequently lost. And, of course, now she's a host on, you know, weekend host on Fox News. And what was interesting was after the jinx aired, and she was basically hailed as a heroine here, um... And she repeated the same story how she was going to interview Susan Berman. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, she's got this writer who, who uh, I'm not going to name her. I mean, she wrote a story, for Matt, which I wrote about actually in the book, um, that was very favorable to Piero and she, back then. And she just wrote another one in, in Bloomberg saying the same thing, that it was Piero acting on a tip who's going to interview Susan Berman. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's bizarre. But it's also said because Piero's actions had a direct effect on the progress of this investigation. It prevented other jurisdictions from looking at Bobby Durst. We're talking about Galveston. We're talking about Los Angeles. We're also talking about Northern California, which I mentioned earlier, where they've got two missing women up there uh, they believe could be victims of Durst. So, you know, Piero did more harm to this case, far more harm than good. And you know, it's like we were talking about how there's all these different kind of villains in the book. It's uh, in the in, in in the story, really. It's amazing. It really is. Uh, it's really, really, really amazing. It's what makes the story so captivating. I think is because you have these. Uh, you have Durst, who's this enigma, uh, an evil enigma, and then you've you've got these other players who are sort of taking advantage of it all for their own agendas. Uh, notably, Gilberti and uh, Gilberta, and and Piero. So it's very, very. Uh, very bizarre. Now, I guess we we have a short amount of time here, so let's sort of take it up to the present. I mean, what do you think? From what I guess the very very latest on all this is that Durst, uh, he you know he's on he's been arrested for for weapons charges because when they first arrested him uh, for the murder, they found a gun uh, and some and some grass. And originally they were char- he was charged with that stuff in New Orleans, but now the feds have taken over the case. I guess what's the if, I don't understand really the whole significance of that. So explain that to me: why the feds would take it out of the hands of of, uh, of the New Orleans police, and and what you think's going on here with all this uh, legal machinations with Durst? 
So the FBI got involved in uh, 2012, and that was from another case which they thought Durst may be associated with, and it's it's a case on Long Island in New York uh, in which they they found the remains of roughly a dozen women uh, off the beach on southern Long Island, and some of them were dismembered. Some were prostitutes, some were homeless. So the FBI first thought that perhaps Durst could be associated with that. Uh, they couldn't connect him to any of these women, but during this period of time, they became intrigued with the Kathy Durst investigation. So starting in 2012, they began working with New York authorities as well as with Los Angeles uh, on the two investigations there in what was described to me as a very loose task force. So the FBI has been on this for several years now. Uh, it was the FBI that actually arrested Durst the night before the final airing of the Jinx, uh, believing that he was going to flee the country. And uh, so now he's facing... So Durst is now facing uh, not just murder charges in Los Angeles for Susan Berman, he's facing weapons charges in New Orleans, which could give him some significant jail time. Uh, and that trial begins or scheduled to begin in September. Whatever the outcome of New Orleans, he's going to face trial ultimately in Los Angeles. And so prosecutors there, they were just in New York a couple of weeks ago talking to witnesses and uh uh, and they spent about a week, a week, a week here, and um, so they're working on their case. I would not have, I don't think that they would have charged her unless they believed that they had some very solid evidence. Uh, and so, uh, so they're moving forward. What's good about all of this, though, the fact that the, the, the New Orleans trial was delayed, is it's given the FBI now an opportunity to look, as I mentioned earlier, in cities across the country, and there's a lot of them where Durst has lived before and where he has assumed different identities, where he's uh, lived amongst the homeless. Uh, And we're talking in cities from coast to coast. One town in Vermont, you may recall last month, said that Durst was a suspect in the disappearance of a woman there Hmm. uh, going back to 1972. And she disappeared in front of a health food store that Durst had owned. So there's a lot going on. Uh, There's a lot going on behind the scenes. He's in prison right now. He's going to be there for a long time. I don't think he'll ever get out. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there will be a trial in New Orleans and likely there will be a trial in Los Angeles. Okay. Maybe you can explain this to me. Um, it, let's say he goes on trial in New Orleans uh, under the federal charges and he's found guilty of the gun stuff. Um, so he's already got, like, say, a 10-year sentence, right? They, does he go right to L.A., though, for the murder charge, or, are they gonna, or is it the kind of thing where he sits around for 10 years and then they charge him? How does that work? That's it. That's that's a good question. Frankly, that's a question I'm asking, uh, and I haven't gotten an answer back yet. Uh, it would depend on the authorities. It would, you know, being that he's already been convicted in New Orleans, he's going to be in prison there for a while. Uh, it would give Los Angeles time. They wouldn't be in any rush uh, to bring him to trial. Yeah. Uh, but whether or not it would happen quickly or not, uh, frankly, I'm not too sure on yet. And because the, the frustrating part is for I don't know how you feel, but as like a I consider myself sort of an armchair student of the case now, and it's like I want to see the trial, I want to see the L.A. trial, like the weapons. If he goes to jail for the weapons, and we never find out what the case is against him in L.A., I don't know. It's going to be kind of uh, it's going to be like a like a loose thread that'll drive me crazy. Well, the L.A. the L.A. trial is going to be really important in that 
he's charged with killing Susan Berman because she was a witness in the murder of another woman. Another woman is Kathy Durst. So if he's convicted in killing Susan Berman, then that would give New York authorities um, a motive. They haven't been able to charge him yet. Every you know the evidence that New York has is is purely circumstantial. Um, it's good evidence, but it's nothing that they can really hang their hat on. Uh, having a conviction in Los Angeles would go a long way to having New York file charges. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Um, like you said, they they wouldn't charge him unless they had a really good case. And it's like, I I tend to agree with you, but I'm wondering what <laughs> what that is. And especially too, there's the hope that if they if they do do the murder trial in L.A., that maybe because they said there's like six hours plus uh, of interviews with this guy from the Jinx, I want to see those too. I want those to be like entered into evidence, so so people like you and me can watch them and 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 see if there's anything that other people have missed. My understanding is that's exactly what the uh, prosecutors in Los Angeles did when they were in New York uh, uh, a week or two ago, and that is they looked at the outtakes, the other interviews uh, that weren't aired. And do you think that it's going to be a situation? Well, I presume Jarecki and the other guy will have to go on trial, and then it's going to be like or go on the stand, and then it's going to be a situation where uh, how involved were they with the police? They say they weren't involved much at all. It's, it's interesting because they're they're kind of like they've pulled out of the whole thing now because they're going to be they presume they'll be witnesses in the trial, right? Like yeah, they well, they're on, they're on they're on lockdown now. Uh, I'm sure under orders from their attorneys. You know, look, the, the Jenks did a lot in terms of bringing the Durst story uh, to national prominence, but there was a lot, as we discussed, in the jinx that was lacking, and they're going to have to answer for that. Right, right. It's funny because, you know, they they came out of it uh, where everybody – there's a lot of there's a lot of questions about Durst. There's a lot of questions about the show, too, that people are left to kind of wonder about. It's, it's a really uh, – it's one of the most puzzling cases, uh, stories that I've ever seen, uh, Matt. I really, uh, I've been captivated by it. And I, like I said, I really do, I appreciate you coming on the show. I appreciate the, uh, I really appreciate the work you did on the book. I think it's outstanding. Uh, how many folks did you talk to over the course of the making of this? Oh, I mean, I spent, you know, I spent the better part of the year researching and writing and hmm. reporting on it. So I spoke to uh, everyone that's in the book and multiply it by five or six. Now, I presume it probably would have been in the uh, book, but I presume you, you never talked to Durst or anything like that. Did you ever, aside from the fact that you heard he was mad about Gilberta uh, from the book, like, did you ever hear what his reaction to the whole thing was or anything? I mean, you know he had two copies of your book uh, with him when he was arrested. I guess, what, what, do, you, what do you think uh, his thoughts on it all were? Well, I'm sure he thought the book was important for him to have two copies with him. Uh, at first, when I first got word he had copies, you know, I got a call from a producer from one of the uh, network morning shows who said they just opened a search warrant and that Durst had three books and two of them were yours. And so <laughs> I was a little, I was somewhat I was a little stunned at first, and then the more I thought about it, you know, the book is a roadmap into Durst's life, especially the latter part of his life where he lived this very uh, disturbing lifestyle mm. and. Uh, the police have read the book. They know it, uh, and I'm sure Durst kept the book close by uh, as you know as reference material. Uh, I'm also now thinking that perhaps, given his penchant for publicity, and this is more of a recent thing. That you know, perhaps he you know like seeing himself 
on the cover and, you know, reading about himself in, on the inside. But I, th- I think it was more about the fact that a lot of his life had been revealed in the book. It, he knew it, and uh, he just wanted to keep it by his side. It's pretty creepy. It's pretty creepy. It was uh, it was it was unsettling. So you never really you've never had contact with Durst or anything like that. So he's never like no. I was I covered like I said earlier. I covered the Galveston trial, and I saw him there, and I covered his uh, extradition from Pennsylvania. I never had an opportunity to speak to him. He was very you know. In, in addition, he wasn't talking to anybody back then. Yeah. This yeah. whole this, this whole new thing, you know, him not just talking to Jarecki. But smiling, he's got this really creepy-looking smile. And writing that crazy letter to the, the L.A. Times. On. And, yeah, and then writing a letter to a reporter at the L.A. Times. I mean, that's a, that's a guy, that's a whole new body curse. Excuse me. I um, It's one I had, I had never seen before, and, uh, you know, it's a whole new... Uh, you know, it's a whole new look for him. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens. Well, this is the sort of uh, what happens next for you part. What do you... You know what do you got? What do you got cooking? What are you working on? Uh, obviously, the Durst thing isn't your only uh, your only research project. You got a couple other books that have been out in the past, but uh, you know what? What can people expect from Matt Birkbeck next? Uh, well, I actually I did. The uh, Durst was my very first book, and I've written four others after that. My last one uh, is called The Quieton, which came out about a year and a half ago. Uh, so I've been working on a couple of other projects, one of which is now an ending for another book I have called The Beautiful Child, uh, which told the story of a of a young woman who was kidnapped as a toddler by uh, another psychopath who raised her as his daughter. Oh God! And uh, and we it was it, it's a it's a brutal story, but it's also an amazing story about this young woman who went on to become the standout student. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know life took a 180 on her and uh and you know without, for, the, for people who may want to read the book i don't want to spoil it yeah yeah yeah. in any event that. but in any <laughs> event what is known about the book is we never were able to find her identity i get to missing against the subject of missing children in america in the book oh really we, i gotta check this we, we were never able to find her identity i did get a call from the fbi last fall and they did find her identity so i'm adding uh perhaps two new chapters to that book. I already spoke with uh, my publisher, Penguin, and uh, she agreed. And uh, so I'm actually going to finish that up in the early part of the summer. And uh, the complete book now, you know, it's the one thing, these stories that I cover, they're great stories, man. You know, unfortunately, <laughs> just no great ending. Uh, well, they're unfolding now, almost, yeah. yeah. You know, it's kind of like, wow, it's a great story. And then you get to the end, and it's like, what? And uh, unfortunately, these are the stories that I tackle. Yeah. So with Durst, Durst, we're getting close to an ending. You know, the the, the new book, the, the republished book, we've added new chapters to it, and it takes us right up until the last couple of weeks. Uh, and then in the Beautiful Child, which is still an amazing story, and it's 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 uh, it was published ten years ago, and it continues to sell. Um, and people read it, and the emails they send me, it's just one of these unforgettable stories. And you know. Uh, Happily, at least I say happily uh, for myself, in that we can give this girl her real name and tell the world where she came from and who she really was. So uh, after that, I got a couple of other things that I'm working on. Nothing I can really disclose right now. But, uh I'm busy. Nice, nice. Now I guess as the final question, do you think we'll ever really know the whole story here? Uh, you know, there's always the chance. 
like you mentioned in that Vulture interview, the ideal scenario is, you know, that he cops a plea and just spills the beans on everything. That would be fantastic. Um, but there's a part of me that's like, haunts me that we're never going to really know exactly the true story, the true life of Robert Durst. He's always going to be sort of like under this cloud of suspicion and, and, and uh, possibility of all this devious stuff he might have been up to. So do you think we'll ever really kind of know the whole thing? Well, like the fantasy ending is him agreeing to tell the world who he killed, when he killed them, and where. Uh, and then he goes to prison for life, and we never see or hear from him again. Uh, but unfortunately, I doubt that would happen. Uh, I'm not going to say, you know, with all certainty it wouldn't happen, uh, but I kind of doubt it. And I think it will. It's going to be really. It might. Believing that there are other victims out there, I'm sure a lot of them will never be found. Hmm. My hope is that the FBI will not just solve three or the two remaining murders, Susan Berman and Kathy Durst, that we know of. They'll also be able to resolve the two in Northern California, including Karen Mitchell, uh, the one up in uh, way up north in California, Eureka. Uh, they'll be able to resolve that as well as the one in Vermont, uh, just to bring closure to the families, especially yeah. the Kathy Durst case. Her family, it's been, what, 30 years now? Yeah, since yeah. she's disappeared longer than that. And, uh, you know, nicest people you'd ever want to meet, and they've had to deal with this uh, for three decades now, and, you know, the hope is is that they can find closure. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, man. Well, I really appreciate the extra time. I'm going to let you get going because I, uh, I could keep talking and talk your ear off all night, but I know uh, <laughs> you have things to do, and, and I do too. So I, I really do appreciate it, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh I really absolutely loved the book. It is a deadly secret. Folks, go out and pick it up. If you have seen The Jinx, uh, read this book. It should be required reading for anyone who's seen The Jinx because this uh, fills in so much more detail and tells the real story of uh, Robert Durst's bizarre life. And it really is a required reading for anybody who checked it out. And if you haven't seen The Jinx, read this book, folks, because this is is amazingly well-written, too. i got to give you credit, Matt. It's... uh, it reads fantastically well. I flew through it twice in the past uh, couple of weeks. That's how much I liked it. It's uh, really, really something else. It is a deadly secret, and you can find out more from Matt at mattburkbeck.com. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, folks, that was Matt Burkbeck. You can find out more from him, as I said, at mattburkbeck.com. And the book we discussed tonight was A Deadly Secret. The Bizarre and Chilling Story of Robert Durst. Uh, let me see. If you're just listening to this program, maybe you're, a, maybe you're uh, a Durst fan like me or a Durst head who's been intrigued by this whole thing since they saw the jinx and uh, is just discovering Banal of America for the first time. We are Banal of America. We are primarily a paranormal show, but tonight I uh, went completely off the beaten path because I wanted to discuss this case so badly. But if you're into the paranormal, sometimes we do some true crime stuff too. You definitely want to check out Banal of America because we have a massive archive. And I should mention, actually, it's a good point here that for folks who uh, really dig this true crime stuff, dig into our couple uh, cruise ship mysteries episodes that we did with Kendall Carver over the last couple of years because that's a story that's going to explode as time goes on. But those are just two amongst the 200-plus episodes that can be found in the Banal of America archive you can find all that at Banal of America. Pretty simple. Just punch in B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com. That'll bring you to the website. 
That'll bring up a whole bunch of stuff and, of course, the BOA Audio Archive. If you are on Facebook and you want to know more about the show, you want to get inside scoops on what's going on with the program and what might be coming up next, you can find all that on Facebook at Banal of America. Just punch that in and like us. Uh, as I said, we have 230 episodes plus in the archive. I should really look and see exactly how many at this point, but it's over 230. So the point is they're there, they're free. Most of the shows are pretty massive. Matt can only give us a, an hour here. Usually we do a couple of hours and uh, sometimes a couple of hours and change and even a three- or four-hour show at times. And you can find all that, of course, in the archive. Absolutely 100% free. And we do these live programs free, and blog talk is not free. So all that stuff comes out of my pocket. I pay for the hosting costs, the bandwidth, and uh, you know the live stream and all that stuff. So I turn to the BOA Audio listeners for help from time to time to uh, keep us going and keep the whole operation running smoothly and keep me in the black and out of debt. So if you could help us out, folks, that would be greatly appreciated. There's two ways you can do so. Head on over to PayPal, click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, secure, and simple. But if you don't trust the Internet and you want to make a P.O. Box donation, you can do that by going to the address that's listed at Banal of America. Nobody wants to hear me read that. So it's at Banal of America. It's the P.O. Box, and you can find that address there. I'm looking for some listener feedback here, folks, so bear with me while I uh, dig this one up because it's probably some good stuff. Yeah, here it is. All right, because it ties into the next edition of BOA Audio. I didn't mention it here at the beginning of the show, but this is a rare double episode week. We've got another program coming at you in literally 48 hours. I'm going to be talking to Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman about their new book, Mind Wars, because uh, poor Larry fell ill uh, last week and could not do the show. So we had to bump it to this Thursday we're going to be reunited with the uh, Lennon-McCartney of Paranormal Books, talking about Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman coming back to BOA Audio for their annual visit. To talk about their newest book, this one is Mind Wars, and that's going to be Thursday, May 7th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We're going to have all the information up at Banal of America probably tomorrow evening, uh, Wednesday evening, when I get this episode posted. So... Be sure to check that out. And uh, as I said, I was moving around here looking in for the uh, looking and looking for the for the listener feedback. Here is uh, some listener feedback, folks. I had to read this. This is really some of the strangest stuff I've gotten in a while. See, uh, after we canceled the Mind Wars episode, I got an email from Camille or Camille's. I'm not sure who uh, asks what happened to Mind Wars. I heard that woman on dark radio and then on conspiracy show, and I do not really like her but I thought I would waste some time hearing you interview her, too. Yet, it seems you have chickened out. Go smoke another cigarette that the Rand Corporation paid for with your paycheck. What, 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 hurtful, what hurtful words, Camille. What hurtful words. So anyway, I wrote back to Camille and let her know that uh, Larry fell ill, and uh, she should check out the BOA Facebook page where I postponed the episode and asked her to try to be less hateful. But then... God bless her, Camille wrote back and said, Pardon me, Tim. I know that your services as a man in need of resources for which to live are bought and paid for. I listen to your shows, but only because I need your background noise while working, because I actually like you and how you treat your guests. Your manner of interviewing people is more like a conversation 
instead of an interrogation. In the end, though, we both know someone is telling you who to interview so the public eye might be kept off the true and actual conspiratorial ball. I am swinging for the fence, mister, and I do not miss. No hate here, just truth. So Camille is under the impression that I'm on the take from the government, and that's why I uh, canceled the Mind Wars episode. Camille, I'm not on the take from the government. That's insane. That is like the silliest thing I've heard in ages. I laughed all day when I got that email. Um, (laughs) No one dictates the content of Banal of America except for me and what I find interesting, as as, uh, evidenced from tonight's Robert Durst-heavy episode. Uh, there's no grand conspiracy. I'm not sure uh, <laughs> where that all comes from. Believe me, I wish I was on the take, man. I wish I was on the take. Then I wouldn't have to harass people for PayPal donations and things of that nature at the end of the show. I'm one of the few people who doesn't do uh, subscription services and all these other uh, projects and things to try and wring money out of my uh, fandom and, and listenership and supporters. So... I'm on the up and up, Camille, I promise you. I swear. I'd swear on a stack of Bibles. I'm I'm completely on the up and up. Uh, So please, and for the folks who may think that, no. (laughs) Just no. It's crazy. Um, So with all that said, Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, I'm going to go against my Illuminati handlers. I'm going to rise up against the New World Order uh, powers that be who are telling me what to talk about on the show, because on the next edition of BOA Audio in 48 hours, you'll be hearing me discuss Mind Wars with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman, all kinds of stuff dealing with the mysterious and uh, troubling realm of mind control. So for all those folks who uh, want to listen to feedback, you got some here at the end of the show. And for those folks who want more paranormal madness and uh, really almost true crimey stuff, too, because we're going to get into cults and stuff, That's going to be on the next edition of BOA Audio with Marie Jones and Larry Flaxman. Thursday, May 7th, 9 p.m., be there or be square. And with all that said, thank you so much for listening, folks. Seriously, go out and check out A Deadly Secret. It is some amazing stuff. If you like hearing a strange, weird story that's true, you got to read this book. And then go see uh, the Jinx, because then you can see this crazy Robert Durst in action and uh, really get the full view of this story. It is some remarkable stuff. And big, big thanks to Matt for coming on the show. Uh, he's a big-time author, big-time you know, publisher behind his book and stuff, so to get him on BOA was really great for us, and uh, I really do appreciate him taking the time to come on the program. So... With all that said, thanks to all the listeners out there, the folks who tuned in live, the folks who are listening here on the MP3. And, of course, thank you to uh, the Hardcore BOA Audio listeners. I know you're listening to this one, too. I know you are, because you're the Hardcore BOA Audio listeners, and I really do appreciate your enduring support of the program. And to the newcomers, dig into the archive, check out what we've got. With all that said... Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall signing off.
little bit more coarse. 